0: Live from Salt Lake City, this is Heart of the Matter, where we do all we can to worship God in spirit and in truth. I'm your host, Sean McCraney. Um, We have our very special guest back with us tonight. Uh, You guys are all very excited about that from the comments I have gotten. We're going to talk with with, uh, Lindsay in a minute. But uh, this past week, those who have left Mormonism, especially uh, and have gone into uh, biblical or evangelical Christianity, have been shocked by the announcement That Lee Baker and his wife, former Mormons, former Mormon bishop, uh, who became outspoken promoters of Christianity uh, now deny Jesus as the Messiah and have returned, not returned, have gone to Noetic Judaism as their form and are waiting for the true Messiah to show up. I contacted Lee and invited him to come on the show. I haven't gotten anything back uh, yet, but in lieu of an interview, I'm going to address this point. By point in three weeks here on heart of the matter uh, and put the blame where it lies most. Uh, and that is with uh, the church that trained him. And then the churches that took him in once he left Mormonism, the evangelical idiots uh, who did nothing to help the guy. And so he's now become a uh, noitic Jew. We'll talk about that uh, next week. We're going to be interviewing John. uh Jess chick. Hi, chick See, if you get a smart woman, they make everybody look smarter. That's that's always been my thing. Uh, Hadjasek, self-promoted as the most unusual Mormon on the face of the earth, but he's also a LDS historian, a archivist, and collector. And he's been all over Facebook recently with a number of collections. That'll be interesting. Then we will follow up with Dave Donaldson, who runs an amazing prison ministry. Uh, but tonight, we come back to part two. She has granted... Uh, us perhaps as much as two full hours uh, of her wit and intelligence and insights. Lindsay Hansen Park, thank you.
1: It's good to be back.
0: It's good to have you back. Uh, I have had a number of compliments on our discussion last week. Really, it wasn't about our discussion. The compliments were about you. But um, especially your manner of speaking openly about things that are sensitive in many uh, areas, difficult for people to hear or even talk about uh, with eating disorders. A lot. I personally know three women who directly related to your talk on eating disorders and great, gained great insight from that, so good. Uh, really good. Uh, last week we talked through your history, some of the things uh, that helped create the person who sits here today, and uh, we left off with you stopping short on describing some of the specific things that you're doing now, um, relative to your podcast, your blogging, uh, the executive director of Sunstone Magazine, and uh, anything else that you're involved in, wanna hear all about that and and for the next while. And then, but before we do it, two things. Here are some of the comments that were on uh, Facebook. I am going to ask uh, Lindsey what she thinks of certain ones. I'm gonna respond about certain other ones. First on such a wonderful interview and a fascinating guest. Can't wait till next episode with her. Keep up the great work. So very good. Wow, you go girl from one Tom Miller. You go girl. And then, wow, fascinating woman, um, my phone went off. Uh, I could tell this was going to be different, interesting interview, but it's been a real exploration and insightful journey. Time moved quicker, seemed like 15 minutes.
1: Because I talk really
0: fast. Is it? Is that what it is? Uh, Okay. Sounds like my wife talking about me and our romance. Um, (laughs) Dear sister, just let Mormonism go. What do you think about that one?
1: Do you want me to respond to that right now? Yeah, just
0: right now, just on that one.
1: I mean, it's like saying like, let your parents go. Like, great. Sure. Tell me how to do that. Right. Like this is what we're trying to get Mormons to understand is you don't ever really let it go. It's your background. And for you to have a wholeness, mm-hmm. um, you have to reconcile with your past. Mm-hmm. And so that's what we're doing. And that's the work that I do. And it's also my job. So I get paid to work in and around Mormonism.
0: Okay. Uh, in a nutshell, a Mormon that wants to be different, still brainwashed. This was a little harsh. You know, you guys, <laughs> if you, if you want to get somewhere, believe me, you've got to be more articulate. Undermines the rich mainstream sect of Mormonism. Loves religion more than God. Well, you didn't really. You don't really believe in God. Yeah. I
1: believe in God-ish. I. Uh,
0: Goddess or God-ish?
1: I don't know yet. Oh. Um, I do. I. I actually agree with part of that. I, that I do undermine the rich mainstream. Uh, sect. a sect of Mormonism. yeah, that's that's exactly mm. what I'm trying to do. I mean, mm. the idea is sort of decentralizing power mm. from some hierarchy and giving it back to people because Mormonism to me is far more about a rich history and heritage mm. than it is about this sort of archaic watered down doctrine that mm. the LDS practices right now. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm fine with that critique.
0: We're going to come back to that subject as we... Uh, Lindsay is the best. She's the female John Dillon or John Larson to the post-Mormon community. But even better, her brilliance... I agree with that completely. <laughs> honesty and humanity make her a breath of fresh air. She inspires me. Holding on is tough. The Lord is still with you. As one, I forget that. I can't even understand. Uh, it's not, it's, I'm not going to read that one. It's just stupid. Hold on, there's one more I want to get to. Lindsay's a cutie, but she demonstrates something of the false religion. Ultimate Frisbee is the best, though. Um, do you that find that take, frustrating?
1: I take, yes, Ultimate Frisbee is the worst. So whoever said that is wrong.
0: No, the the, the cutie part.
1: I mean, that happens all the time. When you're a woman on the internet, uh, you get all kinds of critiques. I Like I was telling you earlier, I was like, I think I got off the hook. I mean, no one was telling me explicitly what they're going to do to me or my body in detail so that was refreshing but um, good job guys
0: thank you <laughs> Thanks for they you. usually say that to me what? lucky you <laughs>
1: no it's i mean i think the one that people get the one that frustrates me is when people say she's cute but she's real dumb uh, you know it's like well uh, okay yeah,
0: yeah. We didn't get that one. The one that bothers me that I'm going to address is, oh yeah, sorry. So sorry to see that she's still under the sorcery of Mormonism. It'll be sad to watch her enter her cell in hell. Wake the fuck up, man. What in the heck is wrong with But would with it be you? sad?
1: Because I think it would be kind of awesome. Like in my mind I picture like this HBO show and they're like shaming me into my cell and I'm like, No, Jesus, no. And they lock me up. That's how it's gonna go down. And and my parents will be like, This is what we told you. This is what happens when you leave the church. Will
0: you get out of the cell?
1: Probably not. I'm too stubborn.
0: Got it all right all right so let's carry on from that and when you're done with your set we have something exciting that we just kind of made up we're going to have a word association game in the interlude between after she's done with telling us everything she's involved in now and then we're going to do word association i've picked some really good words i think they make me smile thinking about telling her them and then we'll uh then have more of a back and forth discussion lindsay
1: okay so we want to bring in where we left off
0: where you are now
1: basically grew up lds uh loved the church married in the church uh in the temple as we say and then uh my faith was sort of challenged by issues relating mostly to polygamy and so i think that's where i led us into right
0: that's where you led us up to what and you've told us your history you're very open and now we're at what are you doing with your days? How did you become a VIP in the community of Mormonism? And what's going on?
1: Well, a VIP in this community is not a <laughs> distinction I think anyone <laughs> should strive for. I say sometimes I'm a very big fish in a tiny, tiny toxic little pond. Mm. Um, but yeah, I I started a podcast on polygamy. That's, I guess, where we can start. I started blogging for Feminist Born Housewives. As I as I mentioned before, I didn't know much about feminism. I I just knew that I had some ideas that didn't really jive with what I could say in my wardhouse, right? And um, it just really made me feel at odds. But this community of women who were faithful and active let me sort of wrestle with the complexity of it. And that was really refreshing to me. And I I credit that for um, becoming that sort of angry ex-Mormon trope. And I want to be careful about that because... There's this idea that if you leave the church, you, you become angry and you um, want to hurt the church. And the answer is, yeah, that's true. I mean, that's true. Mm-hmm. And we should start looking at that as a, le- as a legitimate part of the grieving process so we can direct people in a healthy way. Because uh, what I see is ex-Mormons trying to avoid that label because they don't want to be that thing. Mm-hmm. And so they just hide it <laughs> better or worse than others. And um, what I tell ex Mormons is, it's okay if you're angry. There's a lot to be angry about. And, um, you know, people that leave the church are so afraid of that label because it was weaponized against us. You, you don't want to be angry and you don't want your life to fall apart. But this is what I would tell ex Mormons or people that are leaving the church your life is going to fall apart because you built your life on a worldview that is no longer sustainable. And, uh, that's okay. I mean, I really love this Christian idea of being broken down and then built up again in Christ, right? And that theology has helped me sort of understand ex-Mormons. It's, you need things to sort of crumble. Mm-hmm. There, that's the cycle of life of these, these cycles of creation and destruction and things like that. So you have this destruction period and it sort of burns the ground for new growth. Mm-hmm. But ex-Mormons really want to fight that. And, and I did too. Um, and so mine came out in writing and blogging. And even though I was still attending church at the time and still very much a believer, I got a lot of criticism from my own saying, you can't write about that. That's too critical, that's too negative. And, and again, the harshest people have probably been my own, the LDS, you know, we don't take lightly to apostates. And now, you know, that I have some distance and I've worked with other communities like the FLDS where the apostate rhetoric is really ramped up. I just think like it's 2019, like why apostate? That is such a dumb thing. Like nobody thinks like that anymore, but we do. And um, yeah, so I, I started podcasting about polygamy. It felt very subversive, it felt wicked. Mm. I remember um, I had a conversation with my husband at the time and I, was, I said, I think I'm going to hell. I can't stop researching this. And he was like, yes, you can. Just, you know, stop looking. And I was like, no. I mean, I know what compulsive behavior is, and it feels compulsive. Uh, It's like they always say you can't put that genie back in the bottle, but you start reading the history, and uh, you just go down this rabbit hole, and I couldn't stop. I I just, like, I call it the ex-Mormon dive. (laughs) Like, you find out something in church history, you spend, like, two weeks of, like crazy research, and then you come up for air, and you're like, okay, <laughs>
0: what is happening? Yeah. Um,
1: and that's what I did, but I did it with this topic, and I, I just thought, I've gotta talk about this. Like, nobody knows about this, and if, and if we could just talk about this, then I've been in so much pain over this idea that I have to live polygamy someday. I mean, LDS women get a really pernicious view of polygamy, and I actually think it's different than actual polygamous women. Hmm. Because what we're told is polygamy is wicked and gross and wrong and evil and something those weirdos do down in Southern Utah, but you get to live in heaven. Mm-hmm. And so you're like, your brain can't make sense of that. And I've seen LDS women do all kinds of things with, you know, to make, make sense of this doctrine. And, and for me, it was just such a relief to, to realize how messed up it was. Mm-hmm. And I, I just thought, oh, if I can just tell other women, then maybe they can know too, that mm-hmm. they don't have to choose this so i started a podcast called year of polygamy the idea was going to i was going to cover the history of polygamy from the beginning until now i had no idea (laughs) what a mistake that was Mm -hmm. but i just earnestly start out and i like i said before i give this promise where i'm like it's gonna be okay guys we're gonna get through it and then as the research became more serious and i and i started learning things like about the utah period that i didn't know my world just sort of Exploded.
0: Mm. So um, you've done five years now. I think so. A year in polygamy has become five, which Uh is a great sign.
1: Which everybody like makes fun of.
0: Have you stuck to the topic? Oh yeah, I mean I I could
1: probably do five more years. I'm Mm. gonna. I've decided officially that I'm going up to episode two hundred. I I think I'm at like one seventy six, and I'm not doing it regularly anymore. Mm. the The toll, the emotional toll, is a lot, Mm. and now my work with these communities has actually shifted to in the communities. Mm-hmm. And so I just don't have time, mm-hmm. you know, but it, it's a topic that I know a lot about. Mm-hmm. And it's, I'm very uh, grateful for the podcast because it really, it was an education for me mm-hmm. in so many ways, you know, it, it absolutely 100% changed my life um, for the better and for the worse. but it's, it. I think the appeal of it uh, is because people see me wrestle with the topics as mm. we go along, and it's sort of approachable. I mean, I, it was really exciting when the New York Times, uh, Lori Goodstein tweeted that it was like serial podcast. She compared it to serial, and I thought that that mm. was really great. And yeah, now we have a lot of non-Mormon listeners that mm. love it. Mm. They love my Utah accent and my weird I don't hear Utah. much of one. When I go down to southern Utah, it gets so thick. Uh, I'd say real thick.
0: So really? we like uh, sound bites. Can you uh, take those five years? And I'm going to ask you some, just real quick questions since we're on this topic now. I'm going to scratch it off one of my uh, words here. But what origins of, what drove it? Was it sincerity? Was it, sorry, my language, for Joseph and Brigham to bang chicks? Mm. What was it? Polygamy? Yeah, in your opinion. Oh,
1: yeah, I mean, that's the question everyone wants to know, right? I think I... My opinion is that it was different motivations for Joseph than it was for Brigham. Okay. And and the same would be said about a lot of men. So one thing I do want to say uh, when when we talk about this topic, everyone's like, oh, those craven men and the, the lustful desires of their hearts. Knowing polygamous men now, it's it's actually a really difficult principle for men to live for the most part. There are of course men who love the power of it, the the fame, the mm-hmm. status, which. I actually think Brigham Young really invented, (laughs) and we can talk more about that in a second, but most modern day polygamous men, it's hard. Mm -hmm. I mean, you think about how hard it is to maintain a healthy monogamous relationship. What polygamy does for men, unfortunately, is it bifurcates their intimacy. Mm -hmm. So because in polygamous plural families that work really well, the husband has to be as equitable as possible. Mm -hmm. And that means he has to share his heart. In equal measure and relationships don't work like that right mm-hmm. you connect with people in different ways and but there are men that do it really successfully and benevolently but I do want to sort of break down that that idea that men are only doing it because they're pigs right. I mean most men now that are doing it believe that that's the only way that their children go to heaven right but um, Joseph Smith my personal opinion on this, uh, based on the evidence that I've seen, and of course I, I've seen so many different theories on, on why, and I think the most compelling one is when you read Joseph Smith as a young boy, he's a, he's a boy that grew up poor. People that, that know poverty uh, and know that, and they see other people getting things that they don't have and they know that they deserve it. Mm-hmm. Um, it, there's sort of this entitlement that I think Joseph had. He saw people around him doing things, and he thought, why not me? Mm. Um, and he had a lot of shame, a lot of religious guilt that I think comes from his parents. There are rumors. There are some accounts from non-friendly sources that say that he visited prostitutes and, um, as a young kid. And, and that wouldn't have been unheard of. A lot of boys his age, that's what you did, mm. you know, on the edges of the frontier. And uh, Joseph Smith was certainly familiar <laughs> with a lot of those women, as we see later on in his life. But, um, yeah, so I think it was a mixture of all of those. And I think that, like everyone else in this life, he was trying to make sense of these competing desires, and he used religion. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, that that's one way that he did it. So I think that he likely, uh, some really great LDS historians will disagree with me on this, but I, I don't think his first wife, Fanny Elder, is considered a wife. I really do think it was an affair, mm-hmm. a sexual affair. Um, but reasonable minds will disagree with me. There's evidence to the contrary. There's evidence that, so Fanny Elder shows up in like 1836, 37, 38. Uh, there's a rumor that, there's an allegation that he had a revelation on plural marriage in 1831. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, I here's my opinion. I think he was fooling around. I think he liked the ladies. I think he had a big heart. I really do. And I think he loved Big. And I don't think he knew how to make sense of that. And he was a little bit of a scamp, honestly. I mean, we see that. I, I was just editing a podcast where... There's a story of him beating the crap out of his brother in law, just like knocking him cold till he lost his sight for like a while. Um, Joseph Smith was kind of a rowdy guy. I mean, people don't know that about early Mormonism. In the Kirtland Temple, there were fist fights and they were drunk and all kinds of crazy stuff, which now I think is awesome. I'm like, well, why didn't they tell me that in church? That would have been great. But um, yeah, so I think that he was grappling with all of that and he was trying to make sense of it. I think Emma was a good, uh, virtuous Victorian society lady and she did not make it easy for him. It's very clear that this tortured her. Mm. You know, she really struggled with with fidelity to her husband and fidelity to her husband, the prophet. So that, that was one thing that was really interesting. Brigham Young is a different ballgame. Mm-hmm. I mean, to know about Mormon history, you have to know what's called the succession crisis, which is after Joseph Smith died, in my LDS narrative, it was just like, well, and then Brigham took over because he was the next guy. But there was a two-year period of a lot of fighting. Emma and Brigham did not like each other at all. And Brigham and Emma, I mean, but mostly Brigham did things to sabotage Emma and her power and to take power away from her and... Um that kind of soured me on him.
0: Mm.
1: But he, the way he gets power is actually really interesting. And uh, I know it's sent a lot of people through a faith crisis because it's not this like clean, easy line. I mean, he mm. had to argue for it and he pulled some shenanigans to, to get power. And so I see Brigham Young as a man who's got to follow in Joseph Smith's footsteps. I mean, how do you do that? Brigham Young was no Joseph Smith. In fact, when Brigham Young, approaches his first plural wife martha brotherton he gets publicly shamed and embarrassed and rejected really hardcore which i kind of love i love mm. that idea because he's such a dick about women later on in the frontier but um do you want to hear that story i don't know well, how much whatever you,
0: you liked it whatever however you're led
1: i'll just i'll just be really quick about it brigham Young joseph smith's like brigham you gotta practice polygamy and he was like oh no this is terrible okay who should i pick And he says, there's this girl, Martha Brotherton. So they like bring her up in an office room. They lock the door. Uh, They're like, okay, this is the principle. We're gonna lay out, you know, what God has revealed. Isn't this great? And she was like, "Uh, I need to think about this. And they're like, yeah, we'll let you out as soon as you give us an answer. And she was like, "Uh," and they kept her like prisoner. Finally, Brigham said, okay, fine, you can go, but you have to give me a kiss first. So she does, and then she goes straight to the newspaper and publishes it. Wow! And Brigham Young has a few of those. Uh, One of his, um, Augusta Cobb, she was married to another man in Boston, and Brigham's from Boston. And it makes the papers of this big affair. Hmm. So now he, you know, Brigham Young's going through this big public scandal, and... Uh, some historians have argued that during that time, William Smith, Joseph Smith's brothers, ordaining black men to the priesthood and giving them plural wives. Mm. And there's this theory that Brigham Young couldn't handle the fact that black men could get wives and he was having trouble and being publicly shamed and so that plays into his racism. But anyway, I'm, I'll stop talking history because I get lost on these tracks. But
0: it, It's fascinating.
1: That I think I think Brigham did it for power. I think he was insecure and then I think everything to him became about industry i mean industry is his thing
0: one more question uh but before i ask that i just want to springboard off something you just said you have kind of a bad taste in your mouth for brigham young understandably so from what i know of him relative even to joseph smith i don't see them the same either myself but is that why you have more right now presently I guess I'll use the word affinity toward the Mormon offshoots that are kind of more following in Joseph's thing and are distancing themselves from the Utah Brighamite movement that has taken over this valley. Or does that have hmm. no connection at all?
1: I mean, not not anything that I am conscious of. Right. I I the the majority of the sects that I worked with we we do call them Brighamites. So LDS is considered Brighamite. It's basically anyone that breaks off, and I I am aware of more Brighamite sects than. Joseph stuff, because the original church, I don't, the the RLDS breakoffs and the Stringites and Cochranites, all those, which are super cool, I'm not as familiar with. And they kind of kept Joseph's, I would say, more Protestant roots. So Denver Snuffer? Denver Snuffer is interesting, but I still see them as Brighamites. Do you? Yeah, they're they're having an interesting reaction. So the Snufferites are a group of people that uh, are predominantly LDS believed that you can see Jesus as Mm -hmm. like a witness and um, that Joseph Smith was restored a lot of things, but Brigham sort of corrupted it. That's Mm -hmm. the general consensus. There's actually a lot of diversity in in that movement. But um, yeah, it's been really interesting because they've started to become big polygamy deniers. Mm -hmm. And they follow the old prices. Uh, There's a family, um, Richard and I forget his wife's name, Fanny? No, that's not right. There's a lot of Fannies in Mormon history. Anyway, the Price family—they uh, spent years trying to say that Joseph wasn't a yeah. It was the old traditional RLDS narrative, and um, some bloggers recently got a hold of that sort of resurrected mm. this this stuff uh, to say that Joseph is a polygamist. So that's the big that's the big controversy that the snufferite movement really latches onto. I think a lot of them really like this idea, of, like this. Joseph Smith, the, mm-hmm. the Stoic prophet of God, right? Mm-hmm. And I mean, even if we took polygamy out of the mm-hmm. the mix, I mean, he, that's just, it's such a disservice. It's, yeah. it's a disservice to history. It's a disservice to Joseph, actually, and to followers. When we make our, our prophets perfect, then I think it makes our thinking limited.
0: Mm-hmm. Great point. One final thing on the polygamy before we let you continue on. Uh, Does it bother you like it bothers me when I was LDS and then when I turned on them with my anger that Doctrine and Covenants 132 remains in the Doctrine and Covenants and they say we have nothing to do with polygamy. You mentioned, you know, they're gonna practice it in heaven. Does it, how do you feel about the fact that even when you were LDS, that some apostles are having women sealed to them when their first wives die and that that's that's practicing it does that bug you like it bugged me
1: i think in my podcast in the like episode 98 or 99 i i take the current apostles at the time so i think monson was prophet then and i just show all the connections to the apostles to polygamy Mm. And all of them except that sneaky oopdorf, I couldn't, I couldn't connect, but that doesn't mean it's not there. It just right. means I haven't found it. But um, yeah, either these apostles are sealed to multiple women posthumously or they, they uh, replaced an apostle who was a polygamist or was excommunicated because of fundamentalism or something like that. It's really, really interesting. Like I always say polygamy is in our bones, we can't separate ourselves from it. I mean, it's in our thinking. Brigham Young once had this quote that is used, uh, critics will use it to say that Brigham Young was saying polygamy is essential and LDS people will say, no, that's not what he meant. But here's the quote, it's something like, we all have to be polygamous at least in our hearts. Mm. And I would say that's absolutely the case. Brigham formed a church that was very polygamous in, in the heart of it. Mm-hmm. And so we have it woven, not only in our DNA, but in the threads of our theology. So, DNC 132, which is a revelation that Joseph supposedly gave, or sorry, that God gave to Joseph, which he gives to Emma Smith to sh- sort of mm-hmm. prove, see, God's saying this, it's not me, um, and that she throws in the fire. It's still in our scriptures. An interesting thing that has happened is over the course of history, um, the LDS Church, as we've moved away from polygamy officially, institutionally, they have tried to take the language and turn celestial marriage to mean monogamous marriage. So there's a historian named Brian Hales, who is a faithful LDS historian. He's actually a really great researcher and he makes ex-Mormons mad all the time because he's like 132 doesn't have to do with polygamy. It has to do with monogamy. And they get so mad because they're like, that's not true. Mm. But it's true now. I mean, he's absolutely right. Mm. There was a concerted, orchestrated effort by folks like Jay Rubin Clark, for example, mm. to take plurality out of our doctrine. Wow. And they did it as best they can. But this is the other thing I tell ex-Mormons. Ex-Mormons are always like, the church lied. They covered up their history. They did, but not because they were afraid of people knowing we're polygamous. They were afraid of people becoming polygamous, mm-hmm. And, I mean, we can see that over and over and over in the, in the way that they uh, orchestrate their policies still. Mm-hmm. They're far more afraid of people becoming fundamentalists than mm-hmm. they ever are of like, people becoming like me.
0: Mm-hmm. So, uh, the podcast, we've got under our belt. What else are you doing?
1: So, uh, the podcast led me into as i got into the the modern day stuff where you talk about people that are alive not dead uh, which was a whole new experience because when people that are alive and you talk about them they can talk back to you (laughs) and they did and so i was sort of forced to contend with these different groups um and it's been really interesting so i've had first of all it was like this overwhelming flood of people saying, what can we do you know, with the FLDS? How can we help? How can we do these things? And I was like, I don't know. I just did a history lesson. I'm <laughs> like, I don't know. Um, and so I started you know, networking with my contacts down in what we call Colorado City, Arizona and Hilldale, Utah. So we call it Short Creek mm-hmm. and they call it the Crick because we're Utah. So. When I say the Crick, that's what I mean. It's it's a community that has been predominantly uh, owned and run by the fundamentalist Latter-day Saints, mm-hmm. which most people know Warren Jeffs. Mm-hmm. Um, he's now serving life in prison. But when I went, we had a, a few contacts at the time. And when I first started going down there, it really was a different place. I mean, you would go down and you'd be followed by what they call the God Squad. And um, one time a guy tried to run me over in a cement truck and. The little kids are, like, flipping you off as they're driving tractors. It's crazy. It's great. Uh-huh. It's like Disneyland for dangerous people. <laughs> but um, ah! it w- so we would go down there, and I had a contact, a really brave man named Andrew Chatwin. And he, he's been on a few movies like Prophets Pray. Uh-huh. Uh, so any of the footage that you see on any documentaries are probably Andrew's footage. He's brilliant. So he stood up to, actually, Warren's father. Warren was his principal at the Alta Academy, and he just, he never really got along with this kind of authority. And he was one of the very few people who stayed in town, who managed to stay in town when Warren was kicking everybody out. And so Andrew was sneaking food. He was uh, sneaking food to Faithful FLDS at the time when I met him. And I said, well, I can help with that. You know, what do you, what do you need? So we would just go to Costco and buy like loads and loads, like pallets of food and take it down to the creek. And then what we would do is he had a secret... I'm going to be careful about how I share this. He had a secret way of doing it. We would hide the food in a special location and in like a cellar and give keys to certain grandmothers in the Mm. community who would, in the dead of night, would come and sneak food. Because at the time, the FLDS had, Warren Jeffs had divided the group into two groups. So they called the United Order and the Repentance Group. And there's a bunch of levels in between. But United Order Group got to eat from the Bishop's Storehouse. They got to eat good food. And the Repentance Group was on their own so for example there were a a group of like three boys from a family who they were separated from their family for swearing and put in the repentance group and when you're like eleven, nine, and 6 how do you feed yourself if your parents won't feed you Hmm. you know and so we heard about people like that so we were sneaking food in and um, that's kind of how i first got connected and then as you know the the town does not get enough credit. It's still known as like this weird, creepy Warren Jeffs place. It's not that way anymore. Mm. The town, uh, if you want to know resiliency and the beauty of human uh, persistence, mm. it's it's in this town. I always say if the faith if a town were a faith crisis, it's that town because um, slowly over the course of the five years, I've I've been able to be a like lovely witness to to this town as they've reshaped and reformed themselves and taken their power back. So Terrell Musser, um, at the same time we were sneaking in food, he had heard he had left the group a while ago. He was he's the descendant of Joseph Musser, who started mm-hmm. fundamentalism. Mm-hmm. So he's a big deal. And Terrell um, has a lot of health problems because of some of the lineage and stuff in the family and and he was you know, fighting cancer. But he decided to come back in town and and i said terrell i have all of these people that that are asking how to help what do we, what do we do you know there's a lot of people that are rescuing people taking them out which which has helped a lot of people but terrell said we need to take the town back that's what we need help with he said there are so many people i've talked to but everybody is so scared and so he um so we decided we were going to start taking the town back. So we would go down at first, I would just bring a bunch of volunteers and we would, you know, if someone had a porch that was broken, we would fix it or something. Um, I had learned a long time ago, I had done some organizing for um, women in the DRC in Congo and I it was one of those things, I was a little Relief Society mother and I had read a book called Half the Sky and learned about Congo and sort of what was going on there with mass rape and, um, just horrific, like government corruption and torture and things like that. And I was like, why is nobody doing anything? So in typical Relief Society fashion, I was like, well, I'm going to do something. So me and a friend, we founded Utah for Congo, and we started doing uh, 5Ks to raise money for post-rape survivors in the DRC. And then someone gave me a book called King Leopold's Ghost, which I would recommend to everyone, King Leopold's Ghost. And it was about how the history of Congo was colonized. Mm. And King Leopold, from Belgium basically convinced missionaries to go in uh, on this idea that the poor black dirty Africans needed to be rescued by these white lady societies mm-hmm. who had never been there and never met them. And they, and missionaries opened up this rubber trade that exploited and just devastated these people. And so I was reading it and it was like this mirror in front of me like, oh, I'm the white lady in this story. Like I've never been there. I feel so bad for these poor black Africans. Mm-hmm. And so we decided th- to turn that organization over to refugees from the community. And I thought, I need to be working in the corners of my own community because I don't know enough about this community mm-hmm. to, to help them. Mm-hmm. I could do more damage than good. And so I tried to practice that with the FLDS, recognize that I was an outsider, but I still had enough insider uh, relationships to, to know enough. But even still, I mean, i'm still an outsider and there have been ways that i have sort of done more harm than good benevolently right Mm -hmm. you know trying to trying to help but so that's that really shaped my approach and the approach was terrell you tell us what the problems are what you need what you think you need and i'll get the resources so we got a lease to they had a zoo down there did you know they had a Mm -hmm. zoo? Yeah, they had like giraffes, like hippos. And this is such a crick story. I love telling this story, and I hope I don't get anyone in trouble. But they have like a bear cage. It's like abandoned now. And I was like, you had a bear here? And they're like, oh, yeah, Uncle Fred was up in the mountains, and he saw like a cub, and he like punched it, and he put it in his car, and they built a cage around it. And I was like, okay. (laughs) So many things wrong with that story. (laughs) But what I've come to learn with the crick is like, people are like, that's not true. You're making it up. I'm like, no, 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 no my rule of thumb is if it's too good to be true down there it's absolutely true (laughs) and if it's normal like don't believe it so so we took the zoo we were going to take um we got the lease from the trust down there um who had so the state basically stepped in and seized most of the church's property and was trying to give it back to the people and so we got the zoo and we were going to turn it into a nature center and andrew got the, the lease and he went to go unlock it. The FLDS had previously been living there and the police show up and arrest him for trespassing. Mm. And they were FLDS police. And that was like two days before we were gonna go down and do this project. So we're like, our guy's in jail, what, what's gonna happen? And so Terrell said, I wanna hold a rally against the police. And I was like, okay, okay, we'll do this. So, you know, I'm an activist. I was like, let's call the town to get a permit and they're like, permit, what's a
0: permit? <laughs>
1: <laughs> so I was like, okay, well, I knew enough that if we were on public property, these guys could probably arrest us. So we had to find private property. So we did, we found a gas station that was privately owned. And then everyone in the town was too, they were too scared mm. to do this. So what we did is we got a bunch of posters and we had folks from the town write their messages onto the posters. Mm. And then I just brought in proxies is the old Mormon way. And we just went and held it up for wow. them. And we had the, the Arizona Marshal's office, you know, watching, helping us out. And no one was arrested, but it was really tense. It was the first few hours were tense. But as the night was going on, there would be people like honking. They would drive by and honk a little bit mm-hmm. and then honk a little louder and do a lap. And then more people started coming out of the woodwork. And I really think that that was one of the catalyst moments that helped that town be like, oh, we can do this. Mm-hmm. And, and they have. So Terrell has really, Terrell and Andrew and a lot of good folks down there, have really led the charge. And so I have an organization called the Fern Foundation where we just back up what they do. So they tell us what they want. We, uh, we go down every April and October and do a service project. So, uh, for example, you've had Brielle on your show. She it was, she's so badass. She acquired, she got the lease to Warren's compound. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just huge. Like his mansion with like 48 bedrooms, 48 bathrooms. It looks like a creepy LDS ward house inside Um, and all of these other homes. And she got the lease, which I just thought was so poetic. Mm. And she decided to turn it into the Dream Center. I don't know if you're familiar with them. It's Mm -hmm. a Christian group um, based out of Phoenix. And so they have come and they're transforming it into sort of like, I guess, a rehab center. Mm. So our volunteers have gone down and we've adopted rooms and turned like, redone them redecorated them and so this april we're going to go again and we are there's only two rooms left in the dream center it's it's the women's room and the art therapy room and so we're gonna do that for the group and we just ran out a big public house and all of our volunteers camp in one of the hundreds of rooms in the endless basements and we just have a great time so so i do a lot of work in that arena right now
0: it's fascinating sunstone magazine
1: work for Sunstone.
0: Is that a is that like a nine to five or nine to nine? Is that consuming? It seems like it would be, or do you have that down now? You're able to it? Yeah, so it?
1: Sunstone is separate. Um, the polygamy stuff is like a side gig. Got like it. A, my fun time. <laughs> um, but Sunstone is my job. So I'm the executive director of the Sunstone Education Foundation. And that is really interesting. It's been around for about 40 years. Mm-hmm. And it started in the 70s when uh, there were some theological students at Berkeley and Claremont who were Mormon who were like, all these other religions are doing cool things with their scholarship. Why don't we? And so they crowdfunded. They had a a calendar, the Mormon history calendar, and they crowdfunded to raise uh, money for a first issue. Mm -hmm. So They put out a first issue, which was just like Mormon scholars talking about Mormonism in sort of a more intellectual way. Mm and it took off it really took off and then you know they would have these conferences and um thousands of people were coming and it was really an exciting time to for mormon history they call it the camelot era at the same time um church historian leonard arrington was in charge and he would go to sunstone and uh, he, he had a research assistant named d michael quinn and they the church just let them into the archives and the archives were just sort of like stacked full of dusty papers no one knew what was in there and they said Leonard, you and Mike go in there and so they did and they started writing what they found and that's where it got, they got into trouble. Yeah. So as they were writing history that didn't really jive with the, what had been this crafted institutional narrative, including things like post-manifesto polygamy and, and things that the church really didn't want to discuss again, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like we dealt with this 50 years ago, uh, we don't want to deal with it now. Mike Quinn kept writing about it. Elder Packer, who was uh, the apostle at the time, uh, started a very public fight with him. Uh, He told Leonard Arrington to stop publishing. And Leonard Arrington was devastated. But at the end of the day, he was a company man. He did what they said. And Mike Quinn said, no, you know, this stuff doesn't have to be damaging. We can wrestle with this. I mean, Mike, again, like I always say about Mormons like myself, it's not that we lacked faith in the institution. We had too much faith in the Mm -hmm. institution and so he published the history and in 1993 the church excommunicated six scholars and historians mostly mostly for writing about history and mike was one of them and so then sunstone became in the 90s a really angry place Mm. for good reason i mean people one of the critiques i'll hear about sunstone is like oh they're too critical of the church it's just a bunch of people griping about the church it's like well maybe we should listen to that Mm. i mean when people are angry and they're not heard, they just yell louder. Mm-hmm. So if you don't want them to yell louder, just sit down and hear what they have to say. And of course, they were angry. I mean, again, it's like we were talking about before. It's so absurd the way that we treat people with questions in Mormonism. It's like they get punched and then they cry, and you're like, "Why are you crying?" Mm-hmm. You know? It just—it's so mean. It's so vindictive, and and it's, and it has a function, which is to uphold the institutional narrative, and and I think keep people stagnant. Um, in Mormonism, one of the things that I've learned is the way we're taught to understand the Holy Ghost is if it feels good, it's of God. And if it feels bad, it's of Satan. And that can be useful sometimes, but growth is uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Change is uncomfortable. You're not gonna feel good about doing things that take you out of your comfort zone. And, and so sometimes I think it robs a lot of Mormons of challenges that, and resiliency. Mm-hmm so sunstone um by the time i got it it like i got to it i sort of i was hired because it was the same old like it had dwindled down to about 300 people Mm -hmm. and part of that is in in 1991 the lds church put out a statement against symposia Mm -hmm. and they didn't say sunstone but they said symposia Mm -hmm. and we were sunstone symposium (laughs) and of course that is so LDS. it's Uh, coded right oh Right, and so Sun Sun nearly died like overnight and went from thousands of people to like two hundred people. And then again, people are like, Well, why is Sun Sun so angry? That is why. I mean, there was an active there was an active, deliberate, concerted effort to silence voices. I mean, it carried a chill all throughout BYU, they called it the purge. Um, you know, a lot of really good scholars who were faithful to the church, to the history, to the institution were punished Mm. you know because of this fear that like oh no we can't you know Packer gave this famous quote said that said some truths aren't useful Mm -hmm. and I'm just like oh Packer like Mm -hmm. you just handed people everything they need to dismiss you with that Mm -hmm. you know but um so Sunstone when I got it was the same old people that had stayed loyal to it Mm. they've sort of found refuge that was their community and I was just like young, dumb mom with no institutional history, you know? And it's just like they said, bring in younger people. And I was like, okay, well, let's find out all the things that are wrong with it. Mm -hmm. So I did. And and what I would consistently hear is either Sunstone's too faithful, like it's too Mormon for me or Sunstone's too critical of the church. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, isn't that interesting that this black and white thinking still shows up, which is it's either or Mm -hmm. you're with the church or against the church, Mm -hmm. you're faithful or you're apostate you're critical or you're um, praising it. And I was just like, that, that fraughtness, that's, that black and white binary, that's what harmed me. Mm. That's where people in my life, um, that's where people in my life would say, you're being too critical or they would reject me. And I thought, I'm not, I can't do that with my work. Mm. I can't, I don't believe in that. And so I started to work in the gray. <laughs> And uh, what I realized was one of the accusations is like Sunstone is too fringe. Hmm. And at first I was like, hey, we are not, we're cool too. But then I was like, wait a minute, we are fringe. Like what's wrong with that? Like, that's where the healing is. Like the stories of Jesus walking through, you know, these uh, streets and people would touch his hem. It's a Jewish tradition to touch the fringe Mm -hmm. of his shawl. Mm -hmm. And that's where the healing is. And I was like, why don't we in, you know, incorporate that principle into what we're doing? We are the fringe. And so our, our idea at Sun, Sun is kind of like, we're fringe and why aren't, aren't you? Mm. Because at Sun, Sun we're really lucky that we get to listen to sometimes the most marginalized voices. And that means that sometimes they're gonna be angry. They're gonna say things about the institution that offend a lot of people. We uh, do a lot with LGBT Mormons which makes a lot of mormons uncomfortable and i'm telling you if you have been a gay kid that grew up faithful to the church you learn wisdom you earn it in such painful ways and if we're not listening to those voices we're just stupid like they have so much to offer because they understand resistance they understand power uh you know women of color one one of the i always talk about my friend jennifer gonzalez she's a She's a, um, an attorney that helps, you know, refugees coming across the border. And she, she's kind of, you know, women of color are like, when us white ladies are crying about the book of Abraham or something, we're like, but Joseph Smith lied. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she, she was like, yeah, yeah, I get it. And I was so upset and I was like, why aren't you taking our pain seriously? Like, it hurts to lose your faith like this. And she's like, I get it, Lindsay, I get it. Like, you were climbing up this peak And you're standing on this peak, and then you fell into the valley. And I was like, yes, that's what it feels like to lose your faith. It feels like that hard dive down in the earth. And she's like, yeah, now you're in the valley. And I said, yeah. And she said, welcome to the valley. We've been here all along. Mm -hmm. And what she meant was when you're a brown person in the church, Mm -hmm. you already know the institutional narrative is flawed, Mm -hmm. right? And um, so you learn other ways to, you don't let men come in between you and God as much. Mm. I never learned that. I mean, my whole thing was, my husband came between me and God, my bishop became between me and God, my church leaders, my prophet, it was never me and God. Mm. It was always me and these other dudes and then God, right? But women of color and people in these marginalized spaces, they have to, out of survival, find ways to resist. And so, that's been one of the biggest blessings of embracing this sort of fringe ideas. They bring to me ideas and perspectives that I would have never known, and it's so beautiful. I mean, to me, Mormonism is about Zion, right? We're supposed to be building Zion. Yes. Theoretically. Right. Uh, there's like a there's like a song or two about it. Right. Or two. Uh, um, and I I'll tell you. I don't know about Zion, but I, I learned this from my friends at the Community of Christ because I said, you know, they're the RLDS people, Emma's church that stayed back in Nauvoo. I'm like, so do you guys like still have like heaven, like degrees of heaven and how does that happen? And Robin Linkhart, who is now an apostle, she said, you know, it's really interesting. We, we used to do that for a long time. We had the celestial kingdom, celestial, terrestrial, all those things. And we were so focused on like, what gets you here? What gets you here? What gets you here? And she said. We were so focused on that that we weren't building moments of Zion now. Mm. And now we build moments of Zion now. And that's inspired me at Sunson. So we have a lot of Zion moments, I would say. One is I was walking down the hall at the University of Utah where we have our symposium, and I had there's a little fundamentalist missionary kid from a polygamist group who's a missionary for his church playing chess with like the biggest ex-Mormon atheist ever. And they're just like playing chess, and I was like... <laughs> There, there it is. Like Mm. it's people of one heart and one mind for a moment, Mm. you know, where people can actually hear and understand. To me, that's a Zion worth building. I don't know that that's the Zion Mormonism had in mind, Mm. but it's certainly, you know, that's what we're trying to do at Sunstone is allow people to be met where they're at. Mm -hmm. And that's the most ethical way I think I can do the work because that's probably what I needed.
0: Listening to you, there's a kind of, and I kind of mentioned this last week. At least I hear this. There's sort of a duality in your speaking. You, on one hand, you're a stroke and stab because you're you're talking about Mormonism, this, and it should be Zion, and and you seem excited about that concept. On the other hand, you're you're talking about the problems with it, and you know, Packer and and all these ugly things. So it sounds like you you still maybe like some of the critics that you still do have. A love-hate relationship with what was established in 1830.
1: Oh, totally. Yeah, and I'll admit it. I mean, people want me to be ashamed of that. There's a, there's a lot of pressure in ex-Mormon communities to sort of like move away, like mm. just get over the church, stop talking about Mormonism, which you probably shouldn't talk about as much as I do. But again, I get paid to do it, so uh, <laughs> at least that's my right. excuse. Um, but I I have a very unique perspective now because of the work that I've done with fundamentalists. So I. It's such a gift, man. It's such a gift to be wrong and then to see yourself as an outsider Mm. in someone else's community that should be your own. So I get to learn about my own religion as an outsider Mm. when I study fundamentalist groups. And I've been trying to pay attention to those lessons. And one of them is, I'll just give you an example. Um, I have a friend who, who allows me to share this story. His name is Roy Jeffs. He's the son of Warren Jeffs. And when he was rescued from the group, everyone around him, everyone, including myself, we were like, Oh Roy, isn't it so aren't you so glad you're away from that? Like, we got you out. The you know, this is so much better than where you came from. And Roy is like a deer in the headlights, being like, I don't I mean, I he didn't even know how to make sense of anything. I mean, one time he was over at my house and my kids were like hunting for leprechauns on St. Patrick's Day. And he was like, what's a leprechaun? And I'm like, Mm -hmm. I forget. You didn't grow up with TV or internet or anything. But there's this idea that Roy should reject his past. And I saw Roy for a few years try to do that. I mean, he even thought about changing his name. It's hard to be a Jeffs in Utah. And I just saw him grapple with that in such a painful way. And at the end of the day, it took for me to sit with Roy one night was when he was crying about missing his dad.
0: Mm.
1: you got to understand his dad has done horrible things. He has enacted so much harm to so many people Mm. that will carry on for generations. Mm. And yet here's a little boy crying about his dad. Mm. And I thought, this isn't fair. Like we can't ask this of you. You, I mean, his dad he looks like his dad he's got his dad's blood in his veins and we're supposed to tell him to reject that mm. and yet how do we hold the horrible things that his dad did because that's the other thing that roy gets Roy all, is also punished by people that knew him or like you're just a spoiled jeff's kid and they don't even know what this kid has been through mm-hmm. and what i learned is when we ask roy to to deny his past we're asking him to amputate part of himself and then say Okay, now be whole, figure it out. And I, this, it's really informed my work with Mormonism because there's this pressure to get over it. I mean, even in the church, we have this saying uh, you can leave the church, but you can't leave it alone. And it's used to sort of denigrate apostates and their critiques. And I will say, no, of course, we'll never leave it alone. It's who we are. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's hard because, you know, I, I have this CTR ring and I, and I wore this. I got it when I was 12, it glows in the dark. And I wore it every single day, every day, until my wedding when they made me take it off, which I was bummed about, little old biddies in the temple. Mm. But um, I took it off because I started when I would go to stores and there would be like a gay uh, you know, worker at the store, I would be so ashamed. I didn't mm. want him to think I was one of those Mormons, so I'd turn it around. Mm. Eventually I just took it off because I was like, dude, nobody likes Mormons. Mm. We are, we are bad news, mm-hmm. you know, we're bullies. And I don't want to be associated with that. Um, but I recently put it on because I think for us to heal ourselves, we have to contend with those that duality. Mm-hmm. And it's not easy, mm-hmm. you know. And people will say, you know, like, I'm brainwashed into Mormonism. Uh, I guess so. I mean, if that's what you call being raised in something that mm-hmm. informs everything that you do, can we blame people for not ever getting over that? Right. And why should we? Mm-hmm. Whose narrative is that? That's what I always tell ex-Mormons who are trying to get over it. I'm like, who told you you had to do that? Mm-hmm. They did. Mm-hmm. So are we still going to give them power mm-hmm. and do what they say? No. If you want to talk about it, you talk about it. And there's some people that need to move away from the identity mm-hmm. because it's so toxic and harmful. And I would say, absolutely. Like, I'm never going to tell people how to identify. Mm-hmm. But I, I really do fundamentally believe that if more Mormons take up that identity and just own it, mm-hmm. then it sort of, distills waters down what mormonism is like your commenter said he said i'm trying to what water down the rich mainstream Mm -hmm. Mormonism, exactly Mm -hmm. because it deserves that
0: what what is your uh in a in a paragraph or two what is your goal if you could water it down and wave a wand and have it become the thing you would like to see it become what would that be
1: so our, our tagline at Simson is called, There's More Than One Way to Mormon. And I actually think that's the most Christ-centered thing that we could do, right? Because I do think the Jesus that I think is worth worshipping is not always a Jesus that is worshipped, right? Men like to make God in their own image over and over and over again. And I did that with Mormonism, and I'm not interested in that. But a Jesus that's compelling to me is one that meets people where they're at. Mm-hmm. And to me, that again, that is the most ethical thing that I think human beings can do. Because in reality, that's what we all do. We meet people where we're at, but we're always trying to change them or whatever, you know. And I just think, no. Um, we meet people where we're at. So, more than one way to Mormon, um, I think the more people that take on that identity, so if you grew up Mormon and you still resonate with it, you can say, I'm a Mormon, I'm a Mormon evangelical Christian now, I'm a, you know, I'm a Mormon atheist or whatever, because to me, that's the truth. Mm. I mean at Sensum, we validate ex-Mormons as a valid Mormon path because so many thousands, probably millions of Mormons have taken that path. So why aren't we legitimizing that? Because that's a legitimate expression of Mormonism. Yeah. We need to be taking it more seriously rather than saying, oh, well n- now we, you're not Mormon anymore. It's like, no, 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 they are. They're just Mormon different than you are. And that's what I learned from fundamentalists is uh, you know, ex-Mormons, whenever it's conference time ex-Mormons will be on the Internet being like, I can't believe Elder Holland said blah, 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 blah. And they're just raging about what Elder Holland says. Mm. To be fair, like that does a lot of damage to our families. So we we feel that. But like the fundamentalists don't even know who Elder Holland is. Mm. And that's who the church is scared of. That's who their policies reflect, because these guys say, oh, what church you say? We can't be Mormon. We're going to be even more Mormon. And I'm not saying that that is the way to do it. But what I learned in in, in that is, that's where the power is. Mm-hmm. The power is being able to claim your identity and not organize around what these guys are saying all the time. Mm-hmm. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but, but I truly believe that if we want to get our power back, then we have to stop listening to their narrative. Mm-hmm. And that's their narrative As you stay or you go. Mm-hmm. You're in or you're out. And to me, um, faith is so much bigger than that. Uh, God is so much bigger than that, so much bigger than Mormonism. But if, if God exists the way that most of us think that God exists, then we have to contend with God allowed or whatever Mormonism. And here we are. Mm -hmm. And you're going to tell us that I don't have the right to care about that or Mm -hmm. think about it or own part of that. That's who I am. And Mm -hmm. I'm not going to apologize
0: for that. In 2005, I wrote a book called Born Again Mormon and uh, Levina Fielding Anderson edited it for me. But uh, that was my print, my premise. Uh, I, you know, said you can be a born again and stay Mormon. Yeah. But the, the resistance from both sides, both sides was yeah. equally uh, venomous. So I understand that approach, what you're saying. I understand your uh, what you're about now better. I didn't. What I don't understand, you have to teach me in the next few minutes what is feminism? Oh, okay. Feminism. Is there a difference in feminism from a former LDS or a current LDS woman and feminists as I think I understand them in the world? Yeah. There is.
1: Uh, Well, I mean, it's as diverse as there are people. Okay. So I, I like to remind everyone that feminists. Theory is a theory. It's an academic theory that was developed over the course of like two centuries and, and more. It's actually been building. And that's all it is. It's a theory, just like any other theory. And it can be a useful tool. It can also be a weapon, depending on how it's used. Uh, one of the I consider myself a Mormon feminist uh, with an asterisk because there's a lot of complications in feminist feminism that makes me want to turn my ring around, right? It would be like, I don't want to be like that. But um, really, people will say, oh, you're a Mormon feminist, isn't that an oxymoron? And I'm like, oh, you guys, don't you get it? Like, feminism only presents itself where it's needed. Like, if we were all equitable and we had no problems, then there wouldn't be feminism. It just right. wouldn't be a thing. Um, but in Mormonism, it's absolutely needed. I mean, there's a total gender imbalance. There's an imbalance of power, and, and Mormons do not like to talk about this. I mean." listen, I can talk about polygamy, I can talk about, I can make fun of the apostles if I wanted, but man, if I come at priesthood, (laughs) like priesthood authority or like, I got death threats when I wore pants to church. Mm. Like that is how insane we are about gender roles. So uh, Mormons don't like to talk about this, but there is gender inequity in the church. and, And I use, I like the word inequity or equity better than equality because Equality is so fraught and so complicated, and it means like everybody's equal, right? Right. Um, Which is just impossible. Like we're not all born equally in nature, right? Right. Nature has a lot of variance and things like that. So if we're talking about equality being the same, no one's the same. Equity is about just distribution and access to resources. So I like that word because Mm -hmm. it's about making sure that everybody has uh, as much equity in resources, as much access as possible to education and resources and power and, and money and survival and things like that. So uh, I really learned how to be a feminist through my Mormonism. So I learned in Mormon ways. Like um, I can go over some of the gender issues in the church if yeah. you like. Some of them are the fact that um, to, be a, to be in power in the LDS church, you have to have the priesthood. And we do have women leaders, but they're called auxiliary. And at the end of the day, their choices and decisions still will always ultimately have to go through a man. And some people say, well, what's the big deal? But I can tell you, it's like me working with the FLDS. I can think that I know best and think that I understand some things, but I'm still coming at it with my perspective and my baggage and not addressing some of the issues that they know because I'm not FLDS. And it's the same thing when men try to fix problems for women. Mm-hmm. It's like. But you don't even know what it, what this is like, and so I learned how to be a woman from men. I mean, all of the ways that I learned how to be a woman were from men in my life, leaders telling me what a woman was, and that's probably why I'm so screwed up. I mean, they didn't know what they were talking about. So
0: true, Dad.
1: So feminism to me is about trying to live my life in a way and align my values in a way where people have the most equity. And uh, I've seen it weaponized. I've seen, you know, um, people use the theory to beat up, to beat up people, to beat up men, but especially women. You know, I've had the harshest critics, the people who have been the most harsh on me have been feminist women. Mm. And I think that's because when we're dealing with scarcity a lot, right? A scarcity mindset. If, if, We equate power with maleness and there's only so much to go around and we got to fight and claw each other for it, right? Mm -hmm. And I try not to operate out of scarcity, but it's, you know, I have been the victim of it too. So when people are like, well, feminists are so mean. I'm like, yeah, some of them are, I know, because I've been on the other end of it. And yet we also have to allow for women to be angry. I mean, I always like to say the women are angry. (laughs) We are because Especially Mormon women, the way that we grew up and the, what we were taught about ourselves is we unpack it. I think once you get in your like late thirties and forties, then you're like, okay, I'm done with this shit now, ready to, you know. Mm-hmm. But my twenties and thirties were like this churning of just unpacking that, and um, it's really a painful thing to contend with your childhood and your upbringing, which you loved and you thought was so great, and then to see see it from different perspectives, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what I had to do with my Mormonism to see how the gender scripts really did a lot of damage to me and, and to so many women around me. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that's why I'm a Mormon feminist. I don't know if that answered the question. It right. answers
0: it and, and, it's sad, and it educated me because, and I appreciate the uh, explanation because I accept it, whether that matters to you or not, at least me personally. I accept, I love the fact that equity is uh, used as opposed to equality. That makes more sense in a, in a reasonable world. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you start off with a reasonable premise, how could you how could you be argued against? So I love that. So I appreciate yeah. that. Anything else to add to where you're at now, what you're doing uh, before I mean, we get to part no, two? No, let's,
1: let's get to part two. I think, okay. yeah, it's just, I do weird Mormon stuff all the time. Part two is
0: going to, we're gonna launch into a little bit more back and forth, not confrontational, I have nothing to confront. Lindsay on but I do want to do a word association game to start out with I don't think she's looking forward to it but uh, let's just start off I'm just gonna throw out some some uh, words some of these were written before we I heard you speak you just
1: want me to tell you what I think
0: of? what you think what is your opinion if someone oh, says I have so many opinions. if someone too. says rabbit what do you say okay are you ready yes. first one uh, priesthood
1: priesthood I would, uh, immediately think of authority Priesthood to me is intertwined with authority, so and male. And male. So,
0: mm-hmm. Okay. Um, sin.
1: Sin. Uh, the Bible. Um,
0: Not the Book of Mormon.
1: No, I mean.
0: It's interesting. That's fascinating.
1: Yeah, but I'm I'm bad at scriptures. Oh. I have PTSD, post-traumatic scripture disorder. <laughs> I don't remember things as well as I should. Um, sin. Yeah, I. Ooh, the Bible. brings up a lot. Yeah, but the Bible. That's easy. Jesus. Mm. Kindness. Oh, nice. Yeah.
0: Uh, this is, I'm breaking the rule. Three words. Purpose of life.
1: I'm embarrassed to admit that I just saw the three bubbles in the planet. Oh, bummer. It's still in you, Once isn't it? Once a Mormon, it? always a Mormon, <laughs> boom, <man>. boom, boom,
0: boom. <laughs> She's yeah. talking about this... Uh, uh flat single dimensions two di- one dimensional thing we used to use as missionaries to p- lay out the plan of salvation
1: like that that's just the truth that's the first thing that comes in my head that's probably not my opinion on it but still in vomit. sacred
0: loneliness
1: oh with affection todd compton who oh. wrote it yeah. Nice. he and i are doing a panel on that since this year wow
0: very good um mansplaining
1: I just think of the internet
0: (laughs) is it such a thing uh
1: i never liked the term when it first came out because i thought it was divisive which it is but i absolutely use it because yeah it's happened to me so many times i mean especially with polygamy and i'm dealing with patriarchs all the time they're like well lindsay let me explain to you (laughs) like my favorite they always look like this okay listen (laughs) i love my mormon people love them uh, but the return missionaries who think they're going to talk me out of my opinions on polygamy and I'm like, oh, bitch, please. Like, <laughs> you don't even know because I'll be like, well, Lindsay, did you know that the LDS has nothing to do with the FLDS? And I'm like, oh, here we go. Here we go. That's yeah. So I, I, I know mansplaining, but I would also say we call it Mormsplaining. Oh. You know, Mormons who are like, well, if you actually understood the doctrine correctly, it's like okay
0: and that's not gender specific all uh, more to I, mean, the I think
1: it's more male because we do condition men that they are the scriptorians like how, I, I don't know how your upbringing was but like I didn't see women in, encouraged to be leaders and teachers it's happening more so for mm. sure but not in my generation
0: mm. uh, abortion mm, feminism mm. Uh, Mormon feminism
1: yeah actually mm. abortion is everywhere Mm. We can talk about that more if you'd like.
0: Sure. What do you have to say?
1: Well, <laughs> uh, so many pins. I actually like to start off by saying that I had an abortion mm-hmm. um, when I was, oh gosh, I it was. I had one baby and he was my oldest and we were trying to have another and I couldn't. It was, I mean, I couldn't. This is how silly Mormons we were. It was like two years and we were still trying and we're like, something must be wrong. We need to go adopt a baby. Uh, and my friends who have been like, you know, having fertility issues for a decade are like, I'm going to murder you right now. Like, mm. um, but I, it was really painful for me. And we finally got pregnant and uh, I was super excited about it. And then we found out that the that the fetus had implanted somewhere other than the uterus, which I didn't even understand can happen because I didn't have comprehensive sex ed. And I still don't know a lot about the human body. But uh, yeah, and it was this really painful, sharp uh, feeling in my side. And so when I went to the doctor, he was like, that, that's not going to even be viable. Like, you're going to have to um, get rid of it so you don't die because if it'll just grow into tissue and burst and you'll die. And I was and I was like, OK, yeah, this is no question. So we went in to get the procedure and I made the mistake of having uh, hearing the nurse say the word abortion mm. and You know, she's like, yeah, we're ready to do the abortion. And I was like, wait, 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 what? Um, That's not what we're doing. I'm not having an abortion. I'm not going to do that. You know, and all of a sudden that word, it was so loaded. It like just sat on me and I stopped and I cried and cried and cried. And we talked about it and our family members, um, some of them were like, well, you can't have an abortion. So, so wait. And so my my doctor was really patient. But after a week, he was like, we're not messing around. Like, you got to get this done. And so I did, but man, I mean, that really opened me up to this idea. I love my babies and I wanted I wanted babies so bad. And, and so it made me start looking at abortion differently. And um, one of those things is that we like to think of like abortionists are like these redheaded women with like abortion punch cards, right? Like next one's free, but actually it's not like that at all. It was a really, really painful thing. I wanted a baby and I never thought I was having, like, if you would have told me that I would have had an abortion, I would have, I would have killed myself as Mm. a young girl. Like that's how much I hated it.
0: Mm.
1: And now I realize that most women that are in this position, that's what abortion is. I mean, it's not like all of these like floozy women just trying to get rid of babies because they're selfish. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's women who are in those situations, but they don't want to be mothers. And, you know, once I started to understand that women who are at the end of their rope mentally and chemically they can't even control it will put their baby in a dumpster Mm -hmm. or they'll try to raise their baby on meth for like three years and they just can't do it like that's not ideal to me and so i have to respect just like i wanted the best chance for my baby and for my existing babies i have to give that to other women it's not a pretty thing to think about i don't think anybody thinks it's fun Mm -hmm. um but that's what I learned. I was like, okay, this is why I have to support women's choice to do that because I, it's because I actually do care about babies. Mm-hmm. You know, um, this idea of, well, well, just have it and put it up for adoption. You can't ask women, especially a lot of women who, you know, in communities who have been raped to carry that trauma in their body and not have it affect their child. And we're, we're learning more about epigenetics and how DNA trauma can affect Uh, children. We're learning about coping mechanisms. I mean, I just think that is not, that's between a woman and God. And I wish, I wish we had more empathetic communities around this topic because uh, people will say like, they want to kill babies and it's genocide. It's like, I don't know anyone that wants to kill a baby. And if we know people that want to kill babies, put them in prison, Mm -hmm. (laughs) those are bad dudes. Mm -hmm. But uh, women just want to be good mothers and and so that's how I try to look at it because I had that experience
0: very good I appreciate it um I have nothing else on that end uh I got you wanted
1: to play a game and it ended in abortion that's how it always happened. well you know
0: (laughs) yes the witticisms do not uh end so <laughs> You've got
1: like scandalized listeners. Yeah. From, like, oh, yeah. Genocide lady,
0: <laughs> especially in uh, the evangelical world, the fervency on, on that word is off yeah, the chart. And I get so, it.
1: It's hard.
0: Yeah. Uh, I want to talk about shame and versus ashamed. Those mm-hmm. two words. Last week, I didn't re-listen to our interview, but I remember you used shame, I think, at least four times. You used it once, I think, as we've been talking today, tonight. And I don't think shame... I think shame uh, uh, can be a horrible thing, and I think that it can ruin lives, and it can really mess you up when you're young and you don't understand it. But I also think shame has a a valuable... um, element or being ashamed has a valuable element in society. And so I want to hear your thoughts on shame. Do you, uh, 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 is there ever a time in your mind? I mean, you're a mother of three raising your kids. Yeah. Do you, do you tell them they should feel ashamed for anything do, or do, do you think people should be ashamed for things in life or you, I just sort of have heard a lot against yeah. shame
1: yeah so shame is something i'm very interested in um so all the good things i've ever learned i learned in therapy so this is something that my therapist taught me which is there are two separate things there are guilt and there shame and we're humans and i think it's good to differentiate using words like this so guilt is when you do something that betrays your own values you feel bad about it and you're like man i screwed up shame is something that happens when you betray someone else's values Hmm. And I think that that's the difference and I like. So when I use shame, that's the definition that I'm working with, Mm. which means uh, it's values that have been imposed on you. And unfortunately in Mormonism, all our values are imposed on us. And I, I would say in most religions where you grow up, you know, in a very fundamentalist faith where rules are given to you and that's, you're taught that's the natural truth. In Mormonism, your values are imposed on you. So I think it's just a seedbed for shame. Because what it means is you're going to be constantly betraying those values Mm -hmm. because they might not even be your own. Mm -hmm. And you're going to feel bad about it all the time. And we see this all the time with like Jack Mormons who uh, we call them Jack Mormons because they like drink alcohol. I, John Larson's uh, version of Jack or definition of Jack Mormons, my favorite is like you go into a bar and you sit next to a guy with his beer and you're like Joseph Smith is a mother effer and he like puts down his beer and punches you, cause like he still believes it, mm. but he's drinking his beer. And I think that Mormonism sets people up for that all the time. Mm. This is what your value is. Don't betray it, and then you betray it, and you're like I'm the worst. Mm. But most people, I find, don't actually betray their own values, especially when they're clear on their values. Mm-hmm. Um, but when they do, they feel guilt, and that's good. I mean, that's, that is a self-correcting mechanism. Uh, you know, I know that there are some people that don't have guilt or shame, and those people are, can be dangerous. Mm-hmm. But those that do, guilt can be a really useful tool. It's how you learn. It's how you recognize oh, no, I did that. I didn't like that. I didn't like how that feels. I don't like how the impact it had on others. Mm -hmm. But I think shame is different. It comes from things being imposed on you. And so I've talked about this before, but the majority of my values, my spiritual experiences in Mormonism, I would attribute with shame because it was a God that to me was so apart from me. You know, I was this broken, flawed human. Here was this perfect clean God. For me to even contact him, I had to get pure, right? And how do you do that when you're an organic being, right? Like this idea of purity is so interesting, the way that we interpret it now as if we're artists and it's pure white. Uh, I I don't think that in the Bible they would have understood purity in the same way. They didn't understand science in the same way. But we impose these narratives of like, it cannot be tainted with anything. and. Um, When I had to worship a God like that, it was so foreign to me. And I was so ashamed of my humanity. And if God, a God that's worth our worship, I think, would have compassion for our humanity, not not enmity or Mm
0: -hmm.
1: vengeance. I mean, God's kind of a dick if he creates humans to be flawed. And then I was like, why are you so flawed? It's like, well, you did this, not me. (laughs) You know, and so... um, yeah, I think I've had to reframe my relationship with shame to even understand deity. Like this concept of grace that Christians are always talking about is so beautiful. It's such it's like this beautiful Zion oasis and but I'm still so far apart from it because mm-hmm. so entrenched in my brain is this idea of works, right? Mm-hmm. You have to earn your worthiness, you have to earn your way into heaven, you have to earn your way to be good and pure. Mm-hmm. And that's just this fun house of mirrors that you'll always be running into. And and shame is a huge poison in our community. I've seen it damage marriages and lives. And we have an epidemic of suicide. And I think that's because we continue to insist that we know what God wants for every single person. And Mm -hmm. that's such an individual thing. And there's not a lot of flexibility in Mormonism right now that allows you to explore your humanity. Mm without you feeling just loads of shame.
0: I see. In your opinion, are there any principles that can be passed on from religious institutions to its congregates that are of value that would?
1: Oh, yeah. Here's the thing. So now that I have all these friends that are sort of owning their own Mormon identity and still want to be faithful, you know, I have a lot of Mormon friends, especially through my work at Sunstone, I'm really blessed this way, who are you know in divinity school or graduated from Harvard Divinity School. And so now I'm dealing with people who've actually gone to seminary, who've been trained on theology and, and history of the Bible. And my goodness, like there are some beautiful, beautiful reinterpretations, I guess. And I say reinterpretations because in Mormonism, we do have to sort of reframe how we look at the Bible of God and of Christ. And, and that's where I found a lot of the healing. Like, this this idea of Jesus touching the fringe. That's not how I learned it. You know, I learned it that like those people worked so hard to get there that they could finally touch the guy, right? And that's what mattered. The lesson was that like, look how hard they got there. Not that it was just there and he came by and it was there to receive. And so, yeah, I think that that there are some beautiful things if we would allow the theology to do it. But I think human beings, we have such self-hatred for ourselves and it's born over you know, eons of generational trauma and survival and all of that, I get it. But like, we've just made God into such a barbaric Mm. idol, right? And so, of course, religions are harsh. Of course, they're judgmental. Of course, uh, we envision a hell where people suffer. I mean, I deal with people who are in hell now. Mm. And if we have a God that's like, they're in hell now. They survived Warren Jeffs but they're not going to accept Jesus because they're religiously traumatized, Mm -hmm. so they get to burn later. It's like, dude, no thanks. I'll go burn with them. I will be a martyr in my own heart for that Mm -hmm. because I just don't... I think hell is on earth. Mm -hmm. Hell is in challenge and in betraying your values and learning and growing. And I want a God that walks with us in it, not one that rejects us in that. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I think that there are faith traditions that are leading the way on that and community of christ for example they're the rlds one they've had to rethink everything that they've Mm -hmm. done and they've been really helpful to me Mm -hmm. in that regard
0: Mm -hmm. it's like bad religion says "Fuck armageddon this is hell all right um i have one final thing i would like to ask your permission for three to five minutes to pitch to you something i don't think you've probably ever heard okay um because most people don't hear this pitch when they're talking about christianity okay and and then i want to leave it up to you to wrap up the show with any thoughts you want after the pitch and anything you want to add and if any other thought comes while you're trying not to listen to the pitch and you're thinking of other things, bring that up. Well no,
1: that's okay. Is this like where you ask me to like no. consider Jesus? No, I don't
0: ask you to do anything like that. But, however, um, 40 years LDS and now uh, however many years, almost 20 evangelical Christian. Uh, I say evangelical because that's the only way I can associate with it. But I actually don't like it. And I don't appreciate organized institutional religion at all. I think the biblical narrative has been greatly abused. But what I just want to pitch to you is this. That there was God working with a special group of people called the Jews. Mm -hmm. And he may have picked them because they were worse or better. I don't know why. But he did. And they have their history in law. And they were promised that they were going to have a Messiah who's going to come and liberate them. And they looked for him. And he's written about in their old scripture. John the Baptist comes and he says, look, this Jesus is coming. And he says, the ax is laid at the root of the tree. He says, get ready because the end is, is on its way. Receive him now before this thing wipes, everything's wiped out. So Jesus comes along and he does this thing, which we all know about calls 12 apostles. They share the, the good news. He's taken by his own. They hang him on a tree. They kill him. And this is how the story goes. Yeah. And, uh, for the sins of that generation and for the sins of the world is how the story goes. He tells them before he goes and dies, the, the, the apostles come to him, they say, when are is all this bad stuff going to happen? And what are the signs of your coming? And when's going to be the end of this age? It's not the end of the world. He says the age and, and what Jesus tells them is he spends all of Matthew 24 telling them, this is what it's going to look like. And he says in verse 34 of Matthew 24, a generation isn't going to pass before all of this stuff comes down. That was the 40 year period in biblical uh, parlance. 70 AD comes along and Jerusalem's wiped out. It's leveled as just as he said it would be. And that wraps up that book for that time for those people it has absolutely no application in terms of material religion to you or i the principles in it were to those people to receive their messiah and to either receive him, be saved from that destruction or not where a million plus million one were wiped out by the romans Right now, we have a world that's taken that Bible and we've got 35,000 denominations. We've got Mormonism restoring the thing back to the earth. We've got people playing church everywhere. Mm-hmm. The pitch I want to give to you is that that God you've brought up a few times, the one who could be a dick or not, yeah. that he loved the world so much, he gave his only human son mm-hmm. to come and not only save those people if they want him, but to save the world. And the faith is completely subjective now. It is not objectively delivered. It's in your heart. It's written by him in your mind and on your heart, not in books of of letters. You, by the spirit of him as a Mormon, as an ex-Mormon, as an evangelical, by the spirit of God in you, you are his. Hell is done away with. Satan is done away with. This is all biblical stuff. It is not not but i just no one ever gets the picture because because the the churches that play religion want so bad to keep playing it they keep opening the book and saying you got to be this you got to be that yeah. i just want to pitch to you this idea it's it's called fulfillment eschatology it is it is the most beautiful reasonable approach to everything that we read about and it allows us to say in an age where god loves everyone there's no hell there is him reaching out and trying to help all people of every walk any lifestyle sin is taken care there's no sin anymore Jesus paid for it how could there still be sin right mm-hmm. so i want to pitch to you that Jesus the guy who came and he took care of everything because we couldn't everything so you're born gay you're lgbtq you're tattooed you have an abortion, you're a good Mormon, whatever. That's up to you. And yeah. I just want you to know that angle toward Christianity.
1: I think that's beautiful. I mean, that certainly lines up with my values. You Praise know? God. And I'm, have you ever heard of Rene Girard and his theory of mimetic violence?
0: Not not well read in that I'll area. T- I tr-
1: I'll try to be brief with this, but he's a French theorist who who had this idea. He studied uh, human sacrifice in like ancient tribes and... And he talked about how, in you know, we grew up being afraid or we evolved to be afraid of like tigers, right, in our tribes. And we had that fear and that those animal instincts. But over time, we don't have a tiger that's going to eat us. We might have, you know, capitalism or a hierarchy or a prophet or whatever. And so these groups will recreate the violence we're afraid of within our own marginalized communities mm. over and over and build up a sacrificial lamb to sort of release that tension. And he talks about how radical Christianity is because... What it did is it offered a sacrifice mm. to take care of that energy, to take care of that fear. Mm. And I really love that idea. And, mm. and I would say you have to be patient with folks like me who seek spirit, who seek religion, but who have been so bruised by it. You know, um, I love the idea of a Jesus like that. I don't think I can trust an idea like that right now. And maybe ever, but I do trust that if there is a God, it's a God that allows for that. Sure. Because I do trust that God understands that um, because it's true. I agree with you. So, yeah. I and I
0: have total patience for you. And you can take your whole life and beyond, whatever. Total.
1: That's good to know that you guys are espousing that sort of, I think, radical Jesus. That's what you know? it is, yeah. Yeah, and it's it's radical love.
0: Yeah, it is radical love. And we believe, that's why you're sitting in front of the sign, because we believe in that completely, or else we're nothing.
1: I think it's beautiful. I think that's healing. And, and you know, I left this last interview, I, I never really understood why Mormons would convert to evangelical Christianity mm-hmm. until I got to sit here and commune with you. and And, it, and here's what I kind of felt. I felt, oh, when you're in pain and you're Mormon you can't always express it or articulate what the pain is and when you try to tell people they'll tell you it's something wrong with you and I had history, Uh, history made sense of that for me, it made sense of my pain and I think that I understand now that the Bible has done that, that Evangelical Christianity has made sense of a lot of Mormon's pain And and I can appreciate that, I really can I came to it through a different way but there is still a part of me that yearns for a graceful Jesus but I think it also is a journey because I'm still, you know, yearning for a graceful me within myself.
0: Sure. sure. Whatever it is, any final thoughts?
1: I don't know. I mean, I just think everyone should be a little bit more patient and compassionate with people they disagree with. This includes my liberal friends and feminists who, you know, all the, all the sacrificial lambs we want to burn on the pyre so we feel better. Uh, I think we can do better by trying to understand where we can afford it, um, compassion. I would never ask victims of anything to be compassionate against things that harm them. But Mm. those who have not been harmed by those things, like Mormonism, you know, I'd make a call to evangelical Christians who hate Mormons. I I always say like, oh, so you think you can change someone by judging Mm. them? Mm. How's that working out for you? And what you have to understand is we're just all on this big blue dot Figuring things out just like the rest of you. Mm -hmm. And um, faith can, like feminism, it's a tool. It can be helpful, but it can also be weaponized. Mm
0: -hmm. Sure can. My, uh, one of my, well, actually two of them, I have three. They told me that you as a guest have been their uh, favorite guest of anybody who's ever been on Heart. We've been doing it since 2006, but uh, I can't tell you uh, how refreshing Uh, you are as an individual, and the uh, honesty that you bring, and the compassion, and the love that you bring. Uh, I am ashamed (sighs) of what evangelicals who claim Jesus do in his name. I don't fathom it. And when someone who has even said, I'm an atheist, I don't know, I'm not ready, can show this kind of compassion and love that shows me a God riding on the hearts and minds of somebody much more than someone who can cite scripture. So I'm really appreciative of you taking the time to be with us and uh, wish you all the best in everything you do. Thanks. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, really good. See you next week.